This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Live podcast. Today is our second episode covering the first and perhaps foremost author in what is often described as the Western canon, and that would be Homer and his famous epic, The Odyssey. Last week, we discussed a little of the historical context surrounding the mysterious origins of the story, you know, the Bronze Age, the Mycenaeans, and the Trojan War. Uh, But besides the origins of the stories, we also discussed the origins of Homer himself, if there was such a man. Uh, It is thought that Homer lived 400 years after the time frame of the settings of the stories he tells in his epics. And uh, his version of the Odyssey was solidified uh, in or around 750 BCE. And tradition claims that he was a blind bard uh, who began this famous tale, invoking the muse who had shared it with him. And within his stories, the religion and the cultural heritage of the Greeks really has not only been preserved and passed down, but the tales have influenced the writing and the thinking and the worldviews of innumerable cultures around the world. Uh, like most first book episodes, however, in episode one, we didn't get very far in the story. That's kind of our tradition, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, at the beginning of book one, we meet Homer himself invoking the muse to tell us Odysseus' a story. But then the skies are open before us, and we are swiftly taken upward into the mighty Mount Olympus, where we're privileged with a glimpse inside a discussion between the gods, where Zeus brings up Agamemnon's son, Orestes, avenging his father's murder by killing his own mother and her lover after they plotted and killed him on his return from Troy. We're reminded by Zeus himself that men tend to blame the gods for everything that happens to them. I do. Uh, (laughs) But that there are many things that happen to us that are indeed our own fault. So Zeus talks about the case of Agamemnon's son avenging his death as an example. Following this, 
Athena brings up the case of Odysseus, the mortal she likes. She requests Zeus's permission and help to help bring Odysseus home, even though he has foolishly angered Zeus's brother, Poseidon, god of the sea, by blinding one of his sons, Polyphemus. The Odyssey really does have a complicated setup. It's a little bit like a soap opera. <laughs> I know. Uh, and this week's episode, which will cover the Telemachy, is really more set up. And all of this before we get into even meeting the namesake of the story, Odysseus himself, who will arrive on the scene in book five. Well, there is a lot going on. There are a lot of Greek characters, a lot of backstory to explain why things are the way they are. And certainly a lot of intrigue and treachery has already taken place before we meet uh, Odysseus on Ogygia's island. And we learn a lot of this context in the Telemachy. True. The Telemachy, and that's what we call the first four books of the epic, centers around Telemachus. And that is Odysseus's son. By the way, Odysseus's wife is named Penelope. And they had a son right before he had to leave, may I say, against his will for the Trojan War. The Odyssey opens with the story of Odysseus's son. But here in the Telemachy, we will also meet Penelope. We'll meet some other characters. Eurycleia. She's the slave who was originally Odysseus's nurse, but also Telemachus, Telemachus's nurse. We'll meet Mentor and many of the suitors. It starts about a month before Odysseus arrives back in his homeland after he's been gone for 20 years. And in these first four books, we learn that Ithaca, which is the hometown, is in total chaos. There's been no leadership. No code of morality, no enforcer of the rules. In fact, everybody's been bending the rules and manipulating the rules for self-gain. There hasn't been an assembly among the elders in the community for over 20 years. After the first four books of the Telemachy, the story will then switch over to Odysseus's captivity in book five. And we'll see Hermes arriving at Ogygia and telling Calypso that she must let Odysseus finally go home, explaining to the reluctant nymph, she's, nymph, she's not very happy about it, that it's just not his fate to stay with her forever. The story of Odysseus's difficult journey from Calypso's island starts in book five and will go through book nine. And then we'll pick up the stories from his journey over the last 10 years, which he'll tell uh, to the king in the context of a flashback. I know, that was a lot of twists and turns. In chapter 15, we resume the Telemachy with Telemachus arriving back home. And then in book 16, we'll see Telemachus and Odysseus reunite. And the story will take a completely different direction as those two will seek and will restore order and justice to Ithaca. So, yeah, it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> But what do you expect? It's an epic. Yeah, that's that's what it takes to be an epic. Exactly. So, uh, I think it's likely that if you were Greek listening to this story uh, being sung by Homer himself, you already knew the stories, at least in part. So the complicated plot line and the characters weren't confusing like they can be for us today. But even today, uh, so many of us are familiar with many of these storylines from different places. 
for example, just the name mentor. Uh, I've heard that word used all my life, but you know, I was not really aware that mentor was the name of a man in the Odyssey who mentored Telemachus. I mean, there's a lot of references in pop culture to a lot that we're reading from uh, the various gods that show up in movies or monsters that have found their way into video games uh, or even just portions of the stories that have been told in things like cartoons. Things like Cyclops and Sirens are a part of the culture of the world, and it seems I've always known what they were, not necessarily knowing that they came from the Odyssey. For me, the best way to read this book is not to try to keep track of all the names and the characters. Uh, It's easy to get lost in the details of the different digressions. I found that just reading through is the best plan, and if I forget who Mentes is or Eurymachus, I can still understand what's happening in the story. It doesn't hurt the overall understanding if we don't understand every detail of every story Menelaus, Nestor, and Helen want to share with Telemachus. Well, I agree with you, of course. Uh, The main ideas are easy to follow, but the details do kind of get complicated. Uh, For one reason, and this was also one thing we talked about last week, uh, it's easy to follow because Homer has pared down uh, the complicated Greek pantheon to God's that are small in number enough for us to manage. So it's not the gods that is going to confuse us. Once you know who Athena, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hermes are, you're pretty much good to go. And we learn these in context. But another reason is because the focus isn't on the gods. The focus is really on one family. So the story really is pared down and centers very clearly around just a few people. We are concerned with Odysseus's family. The value and the place of the family is very important to Homer, and we can understand that it's very important to Greek culture. Odysseus will always identify himself in relation to his family. Odysseus, son of Laertes, he'll identify himself father of Telemachus, or uh, according to his wife Penelope. So understanding what these basic family relationships mean is of great interest to Homer. What does it mean to be a father, a son, a wife? What do we do with these roles? How do these roles form our own identity? So the Telemachy, which is the first four books of the Odyssey, focuses on Telemachus as the starting point, which is kind of unusual. Telemachus is not the protagonist of the Odyssey. He's also not very heroic, at least not as we traditionally think of a Greek hero like you know, Achilles or Hercules. In fact, a lot of literary critics absolutely reject Telemachus as anything but a drain on Odysseus, poor thing. I don't see him like that, though. I do see Telemachus's role as unique for sure, and he definitely is not a returning hero like his father. Uh, but he is the future. Uh, he's Odysseus's future. But the future is different, and I think that's the point. How things move forward cannot be as they were before. He's the future of Ithaca, and things will have to be defined differently in Ithaca than they have been in the past. Whatever Odysseus is to be in this world, after he returns from Troy, he will be it in the context of these basic family relationships. And when we see Odysseus on the island with Calypso next week, we see him understanding himself just in that way. I mean, Calypso has offered him immortality, but he doesn't want that. 
as great as he is, he's a hero, he's a warrior, he's a pirate. He can't be anything alone. And so before we meet Odysseus in chapter 5, crying and groaning for home, we start the story by looking at Telemachus and the personification of Odysseus's home. One thing to notice about Telemachus as a character, and this is something I didn't know until I researched him for this podcast, is that Telemachus is the only character in Greek literature that is not a static character. Well, I think we need to take a refresher on that. And let me remind everyone that static characters are characters that don't change in the stories. The character traits that define them at the end of the story are the same as the ones in the beginning and usually the one that creates the tragedy. Uh, We saw this in both Oedipus and Antigone. No one in those stories is willing to change, and so, you know, hence the problem. Dynamic characters are characters that are changed by the experiences of the story, you know, either for better or for worse. Uh, So you're saying that no character besides Telemachus is going to experience any change over time or grow up in the story? Well, I'm not saying that because I haven't read all the Greek stories, but the Greek scholars C.M.H. Miller and J.W.S. Carmichael made that claim in the journal Greece in Rome, and that's exactly what they meant. Greeks are famous for their tragedies, but how the stories are set up with all these choruses makes it difficult. Really, they're not designed for the characters to develop inside of the story. They can develop between stories, and Oedipus definitely does that, but not within the story itself. Telemachus is the only character where the point of him that we see is to watch him change over time. So whatever that change is, is very important to Homer. And for Homer, this change will be explicitly stated. It is not implied. It is absolutely stated through various characters who talk to Telemachus throughout the story. Homer is interested in showing us how a boy becomes a man. Now, obviously, I need to make a disclaimer here. We are going to use gendered language because that's the language of the text. That's the way the ancient Greeks thought of this idea today that we consider, we prefer to call coming of age. But please understand that this journey of self-discovery is not exclusively male. It may not even be exclusively a path from childhood to adulthood Although, again, that's the language that the Greeks are employing here, and I think it's a good way to understand this process. Now, I think psychologically speaking, we could say that many adults never arrive at their sense of manhood. (laughs) I think you're right. If you want to use the gendered language of the Greeks. And what Homer's clearly talking about is that place in a life's journey where any individual takes up the burden of personal responsibility and the the transition from being a passive agent really in one's life to being an active agent. This is something that we think of as being nurtured by parenting because role models are how we learn in this world. But parenting uh, is a luxury that not everyone experiences. And what do you do if you have no healthy role models in your world for whatever reason? And, and what if you do? Is a, a privileged birth a guaranteed of any kind of future success? I mean, uh, what we can see clearly really in the life of Telemachus, especially if you compare him with the suitors and other sons in the Telemachy, is that 
Nothing is guaranteed regardless of your advantages or your disadvantages. This acceptance of personal responsibility that the Greeks are representing through this language of becoming a man is something that no one can do for anyone else. Either a person takes on the burden of responsibility for himself or herself and the others who are in their orbit or a person doesn't. The suitors certainly think uh, there is a shortcut to success and so did the man who killed Agamemnon. Yes, but the gods don't allow these kinds of people to succeed ultimately. I mean, in the cases you just mentioned, both of these groups will experience the same fate. Here's a spoiler. Death. (laughs) (laughs) That spoils a lot of stories. I know. Homer's gods absolutely make sure everyone gets hit with something, some crisis, some unfortunate fate. Not even King Menelaus himself, married to the most beautiful woman in the world, escapes the twists and turns that fate throws at them by the gods. But as we're told in the first lines of the story, what we do with the circumstances we are given are in large part what seals the outcome of our existences. So the challenge of facing one's individual particular fate is broken down by looking at at particular circumstances, and we're going to see these special circumstances facing Telemachus at this particular age. Now, most scholars suggest that Telemachus is probably 20 years old, but that's not really explicitly stated anywhere in the text itself. I think it's also interesting to note that the things that he has to deal with are tremendously difficult problems and aren't really his fault. He didn't create these problems. Telemachus knows this, and at first he does what most people do when we're faced with tremendously large and difficult problems that are not our fault. We meet Telemachus in the beginning, casting blame and sulking. Hmm. <laughs> He's angry, but honestly, it's it's an easy life, and it's easy to be angry. He's getting pushed around by people who have literally injected themselves into his world, and he just sits in the corner. I find it interesting that at one point Telemachus even claims that he's not even sure who his father is, even though, you know, no one else seems to question that at all. It's that kind of uh, who am I that seems to be casting blame. You know, none of what we see in Telemachus here is very admirable or helpful. Homer clearly illustrates the cost of doing nothing regardless of the reason. And there are lots of good reasons to do nothing. Uh, Telemachus has reasons uh, to be intimidated. He's young. Um, He's outnumbered by men who are better trained and are larger and older than he is. And he doesn't have any personal strength of mind, but maybe not of body either. Uh, At least at this point in the story, we can't be sure of how strong or smart he is. He hasn't done anything to show us one way or the other at this point. (laughs) You're right, and I'm glad you brought up strength of mind because you have brought us exactly back to Athena, the goddess of wisdom, and that's who Telemachus needs because that's what she can give, and that who comes to intervene on his behalf. The best of us are the ones who are good at listening to Athena and thinking of wisdom as a Greek goddess speaking in our ear is a lovely way to conceptualize this. Uh, In this case, he will hear a little voice literally speaking to him from outside of himself. It will be on him, though, to decide whether or not he wants to listen to the voice. 
So let's jump into the story and see how Athena meets Telemachus in book one. One magical element of the story, by the way, is that Athena is a shapeshifter. She can appear to people as anything or anyone she wants, which is another great way to think of wisdom coming down into the world as a goddess speaking through anyone or anything, because that's what she does. She is going to approach Telemachus as an old family friend, a neighboring king, a man by the name of Mentes. As Mentes, she enters Telemachus's house. And down she swept from Olympus's craggy peaks and lit on Ithaca, standing tall at Odysseus's gates, the threshold of his court. Gripping her bronze spear, she looked for all the world like a stranger now, like Mentes, lord of the Taphians. There she found the swaggering suitors just then amusing themselves with rolling dice before the door, lounging on hides of oxen they had killed themselves, while heralds and brisk attendants bustled around them, some at the mixing tables, mulling wine and water, others wiping the tables down with sopping sponges, setting them out in place. Still other servants jointed and carved the great sides of meat. First and far to see her was Prince Telemachus, sitting among the suitors, heart obsessed with grief. He could almost see his magnificent father here in his mind's eye. If only he might drop from the clouds and drive these suitors on a route through the halls and regain his pride or place and rule his own domains. Daydreaming as he sat among the suitors, he glimpsed Athena now, and straight to the porch he went, mortified that a guest might still be standing at the doors. Pausing beside her there, he clasped her right hand and, relieving her at once of her long bronze spear, met her with winged words. Greetings, stranger. Here in our house, you'll find a royal welcome. Have supper first and then tell us what you need. He led the way and Pallas Athena followed. Once in the high-hauled, high-roofed hall, he took her lance and fixed it firm in a burnished rack against a sturdy pillar. And there were rows and rows of spears and battled Odysseus's spears stood stacked and waiting. Then he escorted her to a high elaborate chair of honor. Over it draped a cloth. And here he placed his guest with a stool to rest her feet. Well, it looks like Telemachus receives him or her, whichever they are, uh, well. Uh, he gives him a seat of honor and really tries to take care of the stranger. And it doesn't appear that he knows him. No. And Athena, as Mentes, prophesies that his father will come home. But Telemachus is despondent. He's bitter about what has happened. He's angry people have moved in or taken over his home, siphoning off his wealth, and that his mother can't do anything about it. But it never occurs to him that he could do something about it himself. It says he dreams of the day his father will come back. He also longs to be famous in his own right. He dreams but cannot conceive of taking any initiative himself. Athena, the voice of wisdom, must awaken him. Let's read what she says to him in the person of Menthes. But you, I urge you, think how to drive these suitors from your halls. Come now, listen closely, take my words to heart. At daybreak, summon the island's lords to full assembly. Give your orders to all and call the gods to witness. Tell the suitors to scatter, each to his own place. As for your mother, if the spirit moves her to marry, let her go back to her father's house, a man of power. Her kin will arrange the wedding, provide the gifts, and array that goes with a daughter dearly loved. For you, I have some good advice, if only you will accept it. 
fit out a ship with 20 oars, the best in sight, sail in quest of news of your long-lost father, someone may tell you something, or you may catch a rumor straight from Zeus, rumor that carries news to men like nothing else. First, go down to Pelos, question the old King Nestor, then cross over to Sparta to red-haired Menelaus, of all the bronze-armored Achaeans, the last man back. Now, if you hear your father's alive and heading home, hard-pressed as you are, brave out one more year. If you hear he's dead, no longer among the living, then back you come to the native land you love. Raise his grave mound, build his honors high, and with the full funeral rites that he deserves, give your mother to another husband. Then, once you've sealed those matters, seen them through, think hard, reach down deep in your heart and soul for a way to kill those suitors in your house. By stealth or by open combat, you must not cling to your boyhood any longer. It's time you were a man. Haven't you heard what glory Prince Orestes won throughout the world when he killed that cunning, murderous Aegisthus who'd killed his famous father? Well, there you go. There's that gendered language. First of all, let's see what uh, Athena's saying. Uh, Telemachus must remember who he is. He is a son, a member of a family. He has responsibility to himself, but he also has a responsibility to his father if he's dead or if he's alive. He also has a responsibility to his mother. Athena charges him to take up that banner of responsibility, but then she gives him some very practical things to do, a plan. Do this, get a boat. Number two, find some associates. Number three, go get some advice from older successful men. Find out the status of your family. After you have information as to your actual status, come back and take hold of your life. It's also interesting that she compares him to this other prince we've heard about from Zeus, Prince Orestes, who killed Aegisthus. I mean, a different lord who had made a play on his birthright and had taken him down. And there's this idea that gods will help you, but it's on you to take down your rivals. And over the next three books, uh, Telemachus kind of wakes up to this idea that nobody is coming. <laughs> it's on, him. on his own. Uh, although in his case, someone is coming. But Athena doesn't let him know that. Right. He has to wake up to his own independence, his separateness from his mother, his nurse, his mentor, even his father. He's going to become comfortable with who he is in his own personhood. Leaving home was Athena's strategy to enable this to happen inside of him. He wakes up in a sense of responsibility and that it's on him to make something happen. But lastly, he's also going to wake up to the difficulties of his mother's position. In the beginning, he doesn't come across as empathetic to her at all. But this will change over time as he himself matures. And we're going to see a different attitude in book 15. He views his mother there as a woman with complicated choices and respects what she's been able to do. As a mom, I really appreciated this change of attitude (laughs) for sure. When Telemachus talks to his mom in book one, and I know this is my own cultural understanding and I live in a different culture and all that kind of stuff, but I was certainly offended at how rude he appeared to be. Uh, More offended than Penelope was. He bosses her around. I want to read this. So, mother, go back to your quarters, tend to your tasks, the distaff and the loom, and keep the women working hard as well. As for giving orders, men will see to that. But I, most of all, I hold the reins of power in this house. 
I mean, and he even doesn't even do that. I would have wanted to say, young man, don't you talk to me like that. (laughs) (laughs) But um, her reaction is not one of offense. Uh, And actually, the word Fagels uses is astonished. And she obeys him, and she's almost happy to. It says she took heart, the clear good sense in what her son had said. Well, I think she was astonished. I mean, here is this young man who's never taken agency in his life, and now he's going to try to stand up to her and to the suitors. Uh, She seems to be glad he's at least owning the fact that he has responsibility in the household. I mean, that's new. In some ways, especially if you compare him to Orestes, who is likely the same age as he is, uh, that Telemachus might even have been an embarrassment to her. The suitors certainly have no respect for him. Uh, In the very next paragraph, it says they, and I quote, broke into uproar through the shadowed halls, all of them lifting prayers to lie beside her, share her bed. I mean, Penelope has been and is in real danger, really with no protection at all. And uh, now Telemachus tells the suitors to leave. They're amazed that he is willing to talk to them like that even if they don't show any signs of actually moving or conceding any space. Antonus says this, I pray that Zeus will never make you king of Ithaca, though your father's crown is no doubt yours by birth. I mean, in other words, and I know he's saying, I know this is your birthright, but if you cannot claim it, you cannot have it. The idea being, even if something is yours by birthright, it's really not yours until you can claim it. Uh, leadership, uh, really, as we all know, is more than a position. I mean, there must be an element of personal charisma that you know really creates respect. And when someone is supposed to be in charge who does not have personal charisma and who cannot garner respect, someone else who does will snatch it regardless of who holds that official position. Oh, we've seen that over and over again. And that's what we have here in this story in book one. I mean, Telemachus should be king, but he's trapped in a place where he can't get anyone to respect him, even if he wanted them to, which he hasn't shown initiative for that either. You know, according to Aristotle, albeit a few years later, (laughs) I'd say so. One essential part of being a king or a leader is the ability to dispense justice. And uh, that is what kings do in the ancient world. And really, that's what good leadership is supposed to do to this day. And Telemachus has not done that up to this point, and he's not been able to do that in any way for various reasons, and the reasons are understandable, but that doesn't matter. Um, He's not administered his properties. He is not administering justice in his realm of influence, and so Telemachus really has no authority, and his world has no harmony. And Until he can figure that piece out, he is not in charge. He is not a king, and so the question the text brings up is, how can he do this? And of course, the first step is that he must realize that it's really on him to do it. Telemachus is going to have to construct his own authority in the eyes of those suitors that he doesn't like. Well, that's true. But honestly, he has to construct authority in the eyes of us, the reader of the text as well. We have to decide He's worthy to be king of Ithaca, especially after we see everything that Odysseus is going to go through. If Homer can convince us that Telemachus is worthy, then we can accept and even 
feel glee when we see what happens to the suitors at the end of the story, which I know it's kind of a spoiler. <laughs> well, would the word schadenfreude apply here? I think it will. Yeah. We'll all be like, ha ha. It will feel like a king dispensing justice and not just an angry boy exacting vengeance. And that's a very important distinction. Justice is for everyone. Vengeance is personal. And of course, at no time in either book one or book two are we convinced that Telemachus is even capable of doing anything like that, of being a king. He does start, though, and try. And in book two, he just as he was told by Athena, he calls an assembly together of all the Achaeans. And that is a big deal. There, are, there hasn't been an assembly called since Odysseus left 20 years before. So everyone crowds around. The elders come in. And Telemachus takes his father's seat. There's going to be nine speeches given by various people at the assembly. But on first pass, nothing really good comes out of it. Telemachus is filled with anger. He complains about what they have done. But ultimately, and this is a little embarrassing, he dashes the speaker's scepter down and bursts into tears. That did not go over well. (laughs) No, none of that is great, but it's a start. That's what we have to think about. The text says that everyone actually felt pity, uh, but what does that do? They just sat there in silence. One of those suitors in tennis speaks up and basically says, well, it's really your mother's fault. She won't pick a new husband, but instead has tricked us. And then he talks about what she'd done to trick us. And if you don't know the story, um, she told the suitors that she would pick someone to marry after she made this um, shroud for her father-in-law, Laertes. And so every day she would weave in it, but on night she would unravel it so that the shroud was never done. This goes on for three years. Antinous calls Penelope the matchless queen of cunning. He's saying that to be mean, but it's actually kind of a backhanded compliment. Ultimately, though, he is taking the focus away from Telemachus. Telemachus, again, appears to be a nothing here on the one hand. But... uh, I have this other question that I wanted to ask. I have never really understood why it was so essential for Penelope to get married. Why couldn't she just be a queen? Maybe it wouldn't fit the story. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not not totally sure. But remember, this culture is mysterious. Uh, Big parts of it are. uh, One idea might be that warring and pirating is such a key component of the culture uh, so as to not have a warrior as the head would really leave a kingdom vulnerable to invaders. I mean, that that's one idea. But I will say just in general that it's important to understand that every single character in this story is an aristocrat. These are not common people. They are rulers and in the world of aristocrats. And this is not just in Greek culture, but all cultures to this day. If we're honest, people put out a lot of effort in planning and selecting marriages and Social interchange between families creates those links of union and uh, interdependence that are the hallmark of the history of humanity, really, as a whole. So in that sense, marriage is a political and economic game uh, that can be won or lost. And men compete, and uh, this is really no more obvious than with this actual game we will see being played by these suitors. Uh, I think it's important to note that all these suitors came from good aristocratic families. These are not beggars or miscreants that are moving in on her. Um, They are Greece's finest, so to speak, men who feel like they can compete and deserve actually to be king. And 
What is a little difficult to understand here is who is supposed to be responsible for the choice of Penelope's next husband. And we see different answers depending on really who's talking here. Athena tells Telemachus to send his mother back to her father and to let her father make this choice. If she goes back because Antonus told her to, basically the suitors have already seized authority over Penelope in making this decision for her and taking it away from Telemachus. And what we can say for sure is there is a power vacuum in Ithaca. Telemachus may have the position of leadership because of his birthright, but he doesn't really possess the charisma or the moral authority at this point to really exercise any leadership and be listened to. So he is ignored and he is irrelevant. And that's the point of his own odyssey that he's getting ready to take. And I think that's the whole idea that people have intuitively understood. The first step in manhood, and I'll use the gendered language of the Greeks, but the first step to growing up is to understand that you have to do something. And if you don't, others will swoop in and make those decisions for you. But the decisions that others make likely will be in their best interest, not your best interest. So even if you start out disadvantaged, just like Telemachus is starting out here, there are things that you can do to help yourself. For Telemachus, that's what he gets from listening to the goddess Athena and discerning her words of wisdom. He gets up. He calls an assembly. He announces his plan, even if it sounds crazy and awkward at first. He heard Mentes, and he figured out that those were words that he should be listening to. He heard that the words being spoken by Mentes were actually the words of the goddess Athena. But after listening, he still has to make the choice to actually pick up and do what Athena told him to do. And he does it. He goes to the storehouse. He collects goods for the trip. He talks to his nanny, tells her to not tell his mom for at least 10, maybe 12 days. He even faces down the suitors again, clearly establishing to their faces that he views them as enemies. He calls out the game, which is important. And let me further note, as soon as he starts moving, Athena also engages the world and pushes others to help him. She also drugs those suitors so he can get out without being challenged. Oh, that's helpful. (laughs) Then Bright-Eyed Palace thought of one more step. Disguised as the prince, the goddess roamed through town, pausing beside each likely crewman, giving orders, gather beside our ship at nightfall, be there. She asked Noman and Phronius' generous son. He lent her swift ship. He gladly volunteered. The sun sank and the roads of the world grew dark. Now the goddess hauled the swift ship down to the water, stowed in her all the tackle well-rigged vessels carry, moored her well away at the harbor's very mouth, and once the crew had gathered, rallying round, she heartened every man. Then Bright-Eyes Palace thought of one last thing. Back she went to King Odysseus' hall, and there she showered sweet oblivion over the suitors, dazing them as they drank, knocking cups from hands. And off they go, first in book three, and then in book four, to older, wiser men. King Nestor at Pylos, and then King Menelaus at Sparta. One interesting little sidebar is that scholars really do not agree as to what he gets out of this trip, if anything. For sure, he doesn't get what he sets out to get because he doesn't find his father. They also don't agree on how long he was gone. 
Homer in a couple of places implies he's only out for a couple of days. But in other places, if you match up Telemachus leaving Ithaca with Odysseus leaving Ojidja, it would have to be about a month. Uh, I think the month idea makes more sense, (laughs) especially if you think about the changes that occur in Telemachus while he's gone. Well, I agree. Also, there's that detail that the nurse was told not to tell the mom for 10 to 12 days. So there's another hint that Homer understands and expects his audience to understand that Telemachus is longer than just a few days. Anyway, I'm not sure it really matters a whole lot. The transformation is the transformation, and the reunion on the other side will be the reunion on the other side. And Pylos, he meets Nestor's son, Pesistratus, who has had a much more normal upbringing than Telemachus. Pylos is kind of an example of a family that has gone right. Nestor, even in the Iliad, is kind of portrayed as a wise counselor. He gives speeches and good advice, although it has been pointed out that at no time does Telemachus ever ask their opinions on what he should be doing. He seems to be interested just in learning about the past, learning who his father was, how things work. Well, he he learns a lot about that. Uh, Nestor talks a lot about what happened at Troy, things that I didn't know. He talks about Achilles and Patroclus, about Ajax, King Priam, and the role Odysseus played in the war. He also tells Telemachus about his own journey home, and we revisit again this story about Agamemnon being murdered by his friend and Orestes murdering his father's murderer as well as his own mother. That's a lot. I know. To which I noticed Telemachus said, If only the gods would arm me in such power, I'd take vengeance on the lawless brazen suitors. Basically saying, I wish I were like that guy. I mean, it's very obvious that Telemachus doesn't know how to act in this world, and that is exactly why Athena sent him there. Ithaca is not the world like Pylos or Sparta. In fact, it's very different, and there are things to learn. He learns by listening to how other men act and watching how they interact with each other, and he moves from this awkwardness to much more proficiency. He learns how to conduct himself religiously, too. He learns how to stay out of trouble with the gods. The day after the big banquet Nestor throws, Nestor sends his youngest daughter, Polyaste, to give Telemachus a bath. There are those who suggest that this detail of the bath is designed to express some sort of baptism like we've seen in other stories, if you want to see it that way. Uh, Telemachus emerges and I quote, the text says, looking like a god. (laughs) I don't know if it's a stretch. Sometimes literary people can stretch things like that. (laughs) Well, you know, maybe a bath is just a bath. Maybe it is. Or maybe it's a baptism. Who knows? What we do know for sure is that Nestor sees something great in Telemachus. Something that the suitors haven't seen. And maybe Telemachus himself hasn't seen either. Nestor sees leadership. Uh, we haven't seen that, but Telemachus sees that Nestor sees it and responds to this. Nestor gives him horses, trusts him, gives him a chariot, and sends him off with his own son to Sparta. And Sparta, we're going to assume, that's where people think he probably stayed for about a month, but he will see and experience the life of the most successful man in Greece, Menelaus, husband to Queen Helen, the woman who started the Trojan War. Telemachus is overwhelmed by the amazing opulence of this environment. He's never seen anything like this before. In terms of wealth, this is the ultimate. 
You know, the main takeaway from my perspective for Telemachus is comparing how Menelaus conducts affairs successfully, and we can compare this to how things are going in Ithaca. Uh, If we think about the last conversation Telemachus had about his mother not getting married, uh, how interesting that we see Menelaus conducting not one but two marriages, and uh, not even his child through his wife. Menelaus is creating that most political of arrangements, marriages, two of them. Uh, (laughs) We can already see that Telemachus is less awkward meeting Menelaus than he was meeting Nestor, even though uh, this stage is an even larger stage. And his speaking is more controlled and more confident to the point that when Menelaus offers him three horses, and he actually declines because horses are really impractical in Ithaca. In other words, this version of Telemachus can engage a great man like Menelaus as an equal. Man to man, to use that gendered expression. But this impresses Menelaus. We don't know really what happens in Sparta. We get to hear Helen's side of the Trojan War story, which I found interesting. We don't have a lot of time to get into that. But suffice it to say, it comes down to it wasn't her fault. (laughs) (laughs) The main takeaway is that by the time Telemachus leaves Menelaus, which really isn't until book 15, He's ready to go home. The Telemachy will stop after book four, but it'll pick up again in book 15 when Athena sends him home. By book 15, Telemachus is aware of his responsibilities and we see new Telemachus. Telemachus 2.0 is a man of action. And I know it's getting ahead in the story if we look at this by chapters, but by book 15, Telemachus is going to offer political asylum to a man named Theo, Theo, these names are difficult, um, Theoclemenus. Theoclemenus is a prophet and it interprets for Telemachus an omen of a hawk who is appearing on the right with a dove in its talons. Uh, He correctly predicts that no family in Ithaca is kinglier than yours. You will have power forever. That's always a nice thing to hear. (laughs) It is. And so there we go. Now Telemachus is set up for the confrontation. Now we just need to get Odysseus home. Yes. And that is what books five through eight are all about. Odysseus must find his own way to those sandy shores. But before he does... He's going to tell the king and us uh, how he got into this mess to begin with. Next episode, we'll listen in and find out why you should never expect a Christmas party invitation from a Cyclops. (laughs) There's your tip for the day. Uh, Let me me make note of that. (laughs) Um, Well, I'll keep my hopes down on that score. Anyway, thank you for listening. Um, If you're enjoying the series on Homer and the Odyssey, Please remember to give us a rating on your podcast app and, of course, share an episode with a friend. And uh, also, don't hesitate to connect with us via email or our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or any other social media app you use. And if you're listening to this in real time, we hope you're getting off to a great start in the new year, 2022. Peace out. Hey. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. 